0: Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement. And we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus-centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. All right, well, I'm so glad to be with you, even though I'm not with you. I, I was just at a conference last week, and I just echo the sentiments that I heard um, expressed from the stage uh, namely, that it's just so, such a delight and a joy to actually be next to people again and to be in their physical space and I I say that in full view of the irony that I'm not there so thank you for uh allowing me to beam in um from afar there are some good things about this old internet of ours I, I I think uh sometimes um I so i 'm here to i 'm so excited to speak to this group i 've gotten to know a few of you through sort of other means and talking about the very themes that i 'll be discussing today um, but i I just everything that uh, Sid just said set me up so perfectly. In especially in the devotional uh, understanding of, of, of Jesus sort of beginning with God's approval and the affirmation and uh, and then sort of any achievement, any kind of life in the world sort of proceeding from that. Acceptance comes before uh, sort of uh, uh, accomplishment. And I think that that is a very uh, Jesus-centered way of understanding our life in the world. And, uh, and it's also a helpful way to it puts into relief the kind of, I would call it the the um, the exhausting uh, moment in which we are living, in which it never has it been more boomed into our ears at all times the inner voice that's already there, that in fact, uh, whatever Jesus may say, the truth is that i know that i am only loved if i achieve when i get there i will be loved when i will matter i will be accepted approved of by god by my spouse by my church when the numbers finally reflect what the goals you know it's it's the the the, the inverse of the jesus centered gospel you might say uh, which says which is a way of which is the way of grace um, which says you are loved right now before you do anything is kind of the the air we breathe in a in a secular age which says uh, you are actually loved only when you achieve, when you get to such and such a spot, when the weight scale reads a certain number, when the bank account reads a certain number. For those of us in church ministry, when your average Sunday attendance reaches a certain place. Uh, and so I w- in order to talk about this, though, more concretely in the way that I've come to find it to be helpful in a in a bridge building um. Uh, way I want to introduce a few terms and the first is you can you can throw up that first slide um which is well that's the cover of my book seculosity and that's the term I want to define uh seculosity is uh sort of is is a catch-all for religiosity that's directed at an earthly rather than a heavenly target so in fact when we're talking about secularism today one of the helpful ways I've found it, as a as a person, as a quote-unquote religious professional, uh, is to understand it as simply sort of a um, a, a, a we're all the it, we're all religious about something. Uh, the problem today, the the with the driving force behind some our increased anxiety, loneliness, division, and just sort of despair, is not that we're less. Religious than we used to be, but that we're more religious about more things, and in fact, Jesus is almost the way that that, that, that he described is almost nowhere to be seen. That we the way that we've just talked about in in so for uh, a person who's trying to uh, understand the the non-churchy world, and in fact, the churchy world as well. Um, that says to us that there's decline and that there's inevitable decline. I think if you reconfigure your understanding slightly, just step to the, to the right or the left, just a little bit, we see that people are not really abandoning faith and making their own meaning. It's just that the marketplace in replacement religion is booming. It's booming. It hasn't, religious observance, belief has not faded uh, Pace secularization so much as migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. Another, one of the, uh, Casper Terkule at Harvard Divinity School, um, he says that meaning-making is a growth industry. Meaning-making is a growth industry. We see this all over the place. We especially see it in Silicon Valley. You can put up that next slide of mine. This is from a recent tech conference a few years ago, uh, where the mantra behind sort of the technology marketing was to turn customers into fanatics, products into obsessions, employees into ambassadors, and brands into religions. Now, that's very savvy, but that reflects an understanding that, in fact, people have an innate desire to... To to worship, we might say, but also to look to something outside themselves for that sense of enoughness. Um, and um, I'm going to get to the the word enoughness, which we just heard used so beautifully in Sid's talk. The one of the thinkers, though, that is that has summed up what I'm trying to say, is Megan O'Geeblin. She writes for Wired magazine, which is a tech magazine, but she's also written for the Paris Review a bunch. And she said that as more and more Westerners leave behind religious belief, instead of becoming purely rational agents, we increasingly displace those religious enthusiasms onto other things. Now, that's a bold assertion to make, but it's a bridge-building one. It says that there are not... the the people who have faith and people who don't have faith and we don't understand each other. It says that, in fact, we're all human and we're just, but the the question is, is the object of your faith uh, going to have any kind of mercy um, available to you or will it be a crushing set of demands that which you cannot live up to, which will drive you to all sorts of self-medication? Um, but before we get there, let's define the words religion and secular, because this is these are very important words to define if you're trying to talk about this. Uh, there's a sort of a, what I call the, the, the threefold taxonomy of the secular. And I'm drawing this from Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher who some of you may know who wrote that book, The Secular Age, sort of a doorstop of a book, but it's a good one. And he says that there's it, one of the reasons it's hard to talk about secularism, seculosity, is because people have different ideas of what that word even means. The original definition of secular was as opposed to as something that was opposed to sacred. So it's the classical definition. Um, it refers to the earthly plane of domestic life, the temporal rather than the eternal. Priests would tend, and monks and nuns would tend the sacred. Butchers and bakers would carry out the secular work of society. It's not really how we use it today. Um, the second usage of the word secular is sort of a post Enlightenment understanding of secular, which, is, which is, means sort of a-religious or neutral, objective. Public schools in America are, are, are purported to be secular as opposed to parochial. Um, and this is the sense in which it's used according to in, in the sort of secularization thesis that is sort of that there's this um, very highly contestable idea that um, we're becoming more secular, the more sort of advancement of technology we accrue. Um, and uh, people who, quote unquote, self-identify as secular usually are meaning it in the kind of a religious sense. but. <clears throat> Taylor decides to go with a third usage of the word secular, which is that society is secular and not insofar as a religious, it's sort of secular insofar as religious belief in God is no longer assumed or axiomatic, but it's contested. It's one option among many others. Religious ideas, religious faith cannot be taken for granted. So even if we were to enter a world in which our churches were filling back up and bursting at the seams, we would still be living in a secular time, secular age, because it still would be seen as one option among many. Okay, you can move on to the next slide. Um, Because the other thing I wanna define, and I know defining terms is a little laborious, but here we go, a religion. What on earth do I mean by religion? Well, capital R religion, I think, is the conventional sense in which people use the word religion. And that's the sort of, you know, the monotheistic religions, generally speaking, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, then, you know, Hinduism, <clears throat> uh, what have you. The And in, in, in sort of institutional religion, yes, there is plenty of evidence that people are, uh, in fact, bailing. But if you expand your understanding of religion to be more in terms of its function and its value for everyday life, what I would call like a small R form of religion. The landscape shifts. David Dark, who wrote a wonderful book called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, (laughs) provocative title. Um, He said that your religion is your controlling story. It's the question of how you dispose of your energies, how you see fit to organize your life and uh, in many cases, the lives of others. I don't think he quite goes far enough, though. I think religion in real life is more than a filter or a paradigm. It's what we—it's in fact what we lean on to tell us we're okay. Um, it's another that our lives matter. It's another name for the for the ladders that we spend our days climbing towards some dream of wholeness. Your religion is your preferred guilt management system. I think that's a, a, a very tangible, everyday way of talking about it. And if it's your preferred guilt managing system, management system, then it's the justifying story of your life, not just a controlling story. Perhaps the most gut level of translation of that is that your religion, your religion or functional religion in society in a secular age is not what we rely on just for meaning or hope, but for enoughness. It's whatever road we are taking, in what T. S. Eliot calls the uh, the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. Now that word enough, we just heard Sid use it so pastorally and 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 beautifully, and I think uh, in a Jesus-centered way. And if you listen closely to the voices out there, if you listen closely to you know. What you read on Facebook and and the Madison Avenue, what it used to be called Madison Avenue, sort of the the, uh, the the media and the kind of advertising that is aimed at us. You hear that word enough everywhere. We also hear it, by the way, behind closed doors and pastoral counseling meetings all the time. Um, and you we hear it especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, and exhaustion and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. We hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, that's the big buzzword today, desired enough, charitable enough, uh, good enough, good enough, uh, there was a New York Times a couple of years ago was profiling the, the, the rising number of, 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 of mental health crises among, this is pre-COVID, um, among college students in America, and, uh, and in, it was dipping into what are called suicide clusters in affluent areas of the, of the American society like Palo Alto and Greenwich, Connecticut. And the analysis came through a mental health professional says for many of these young people, the single biggest stressor is that they quote never get to the point where they can say I've done enough and now I can stop. There's always one more activity, one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get into a top college. Kids have a sense that they're not measuring up. The pressure is relentless and getting worse. Now that's not just high school students. That's mothers of young children. That's fathers of young children. That's people in retirement. That is, I hear it from um, folks in middle age and I hear it from people just starting out in their 20s and 30s. It's uh, it's, uh, this drive for enoughness is very, very palpable today. And of course, I don't need to tell you that no matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enoughness or what religious, what we religious would call righteousness. Our lives attest that that threshold does not exist, at least not where limited and sinful human beings are concerned. Instead, as one English journalist wrote, people today are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. You can show the next slide here. This is a cartoon that I think captures that well. Uh, People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. It's a crowded street with all different types of people. And it says, um, all these people really have it together and I still have no idea what's going on. Okay, so talking about religion in the time in a secular age, if this is true and we see this sort of... um, Enoughness, this uh, edict uh, um, amplified in um, almost into an oppressive extent that's defining many of our internal lives no matter where we sit on the socioeconomic ladder. Why? Why has that happened? Well, um, at the risk of gross oversimplification, for centuries we relied on capital R religion to tell us we're okay. Your clergy, your was your local, forgiveness person <laughs> That's your those was my favorite example, uh, understanding if they, they, they were they were duty bound to 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 even if they didn't like you they could had to tell you that Jesus accepted you and that that you could, you know, were somewhere to go with your guilt and your shame. Church was a place to unload to unburden but for more and more of folks in the modern world that no longer feels like an available or advisable option. The great irony is that some like Nietzsche, the the wonderful, not the wonderful, the the most powerful critic of Christianity, he predicted that we would find peace in the quote-unquote deconstruction and emerge into a new and gloriously liberated mode of human existence. So without a divine law to make us feel bad about ourselves, words like guilt would lose their meaning. We would no longer need any buffer from the unsightly aspects of reality. We would have the courage to, ha- to, to, uh, to face things head on and a glorious post-religious age of human flourishing would dawn. Now we know that that's not, that is not what's happened. We, that is not what's happened. In fact, if our current climate tells us anything, it's that the needs addressed by Jesus, by, is, which is for hope, purpose, connection, Enoughness, forgiveness have not diminished as churches have become taprooms and theaters. That psychic and spiritual energy hasn't evaporated. It has to go somewhere. And so with with, uh, fresh targets crop up all over the place, from the kitchen to the gym, computer screen to the bedroom, righteousness, enoughness starts to run amok. This is what Charles Taylor called the Nova effect. Now, I don't know if there's any people in the room who drink seltzer water or LaCroix. Uh, you have LaCroix in Canada, right? Yes? Yes, okay, okay good. Um, I had to hide before I wrote this book. I didn't realize what was written on the bottom of a LaCroix can. Do you know what's written on the bottom of a LaCroix can? Well, what is written on there, it says zero calories, zero sweeteners, zero... Um, Sodium equals innocent. Innocent is what it says at the bottom of a LaCroix can. So people are buying, when they buy a LaCroix, they're not just buying a sort of a can of something that tastes like so good you can almost taste it, you know. <laughs> uh, you're, you're buying innocence. You're buying absolution. You're buying a, some sense of which people who are feel burdened by guilt and not enoughness, uh, they're being marketed to on the basis of uh, innocence. Now that's a very interesting um, way of thinking about a seltzer water. Not that it is uh, healthy, but that it grants innocence. Um, but it it this that that because that's a that's a that's a term a courtroom term that's a righteousness term. And that uh, it it translates, though, into larger aspects of our society. To live in a secular age in the modern world, instead of choosing between an array of different schools to attend, now there's the one that will ensure your future success and the many that will squander it. Uh, There used to be a sea of nice people to date and get to know. Now there's Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and everyone else is just a waste of your time. And so to, to look at the world through the eyes of seculosity, through the eyes of the, in, in, as, a, as, a, as a person attuned to what uh, the needs addressed by Jesus, well, we can see replacement religion cropping up all over the place. And that's why the book is about that I wrote. It's, it sort of surveys what it looks like when parenting is not just about raising children, but about uh, justifying the mom or the dad, giving them a sense of purpose, community, wholeness. Um, parenting is a good thing, obviously, but when we when we uh, look to it to um, to be completely uh, the sole uh, arbiter of meaning and purpose in our lives, well, that's a tremendous burden to place on a child. Uh, there's a the religion of romance. Uh, there's a the religion of success, of food, even, of personal authenticity, and of course, there's the religion of politics. Now, these new religions all go by different names, but they function more or less the same. They cast a vision of enoughness and implore us to realize that vision with forbearance, grit, and usually hard currency for the sake of existential reward. If you eat well enough, if you love well enough, if you parent well enough, if you stay busy enough, if you minister well enough, you will be enough. In other words, to live in a secular age is to live in a place that maintains all of the demand and much of the r- ritual, but none of the mercy of capital R religion. Jesus isn't there, or at least he's there, but he's sort of on the, on the outskirt. He's on the fringe. It's exhausting to put it mildly, to be in church all the time, but never encounter Jesus, but only the demand, only the ritual, only the be enough or else. Um, and in fact, the book was written out of a sense of feeling like walking into a grocery store. I was confronted with more messages about purity than, uh, than um the same way that I used to get confronted at church about purity, Uh, walking into a, into a gym. I was given more epithets for uh, sort of proper living than I, and and, than I would hear at church. Um, And I thought to myself, what's going on and why do I, why am I feeling kind of vaguely exhausted all the time? Um, Now, one of the hallmarks of this under this form of life, what I would call secularity, uh, is the cult of productivity. The cult of productivity. Um, I this is the way my way into this. Sometimes is simply uh, uh, the procrastination is seen as a major source of guilt for people today. In 2010, in fact, the American Psychological Association. Uh, publicized a study reporting that 20% of Americans could be qualified as chronic procrastinators, a larger percentage than those who suffer from clinical depression, which is about 7%. A separate study a few years earlier made it plain what anyone who struggles with procrastination knows too well, the emotion consistently experienced at the time of procrastination, indeed the emotion that defines it as procrastination, is guilt. Procrastination then consists of of more than delayed activity, but of delayed activity that induces guilt. That means that 20% of Americans, and I would think that Canadians would fit this model basically, 20% of Americans feel acute guilt over not quote-unquote getting things done in a timely manner or of not working efficiently enough. Would 20% of Americans admit to feeling acute guilt about more conventional moral failures such as lying or cheating? I think it's doubtful. This makes sense. Uh, it, it, and if these studies are to be trusted, it would appear that productivity has surpassed goodness as our society's highest value. Our cultural righteousness is more linked to efficiency than morality. Uh, and because to procrastinate, you know, is to transgress the most precious of capitalist pieties, which is um, thou shalt produce. A local friend at a tech firm told a story to me somewhat recently of his company's new headquarters uh, and touring it with some younger colleagues. And the most pressing question they had for their boss was whether or not they would be able to bring their pets to work. It wasn't about, you know, would there be, you know, uh, good lighting or decent airflow or something like that. Such a question would have never have occurred to their parents. But it's not necessarily because these young people are being coddled. I think it has more to do with The Onion, what they say when they they, talk, they reported that headline, that mock headline. "Laid-back company allows employees to work from home after 6 p.m. That's supposed to be a joke. I can't tell if people are laughing. Um, but as one of Amazon's running office jokes goes, work-life balance is for people who do not like their work. <laughs> so funny. But we live. Uh, we live to work. In an age of the secular age, rather than the other way around. So the distinction between our jobs and ourselves understandably disappears. In the Bible, you know, St. Paul often takes issue with those who depend on good works for their righteousness. Today, we've simply subtracted the good part and kept the work part. So the seculosity of, of work, that's what I would call it here, may have reached absurd heights, but that doesn't mean it's a laughing matter. In fact, you know, talk to clinical social workers in the Bay Area in California and the amount of people they see in the tech and startup sector uh, w- would say that she I, I remember reading an interview with one woman who told me that the expectation is not that you should work smart Uh, It's that you should work hard. It's just do, 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 do until you can't do anymore. And of course, one of the buzzwords of 2022, um, this time when we're supposedly all working from home, is burnout. Burnout is everywhere. Burnout is very much among religious professionals, but it's among the old, the young, the people um, in the helping professions, people in the markets, people in uh, all sorts of avenues. Everyone is burned out. This kind of uh, water that we breathe recasts all of our daily activities as momentary offerings on the altar of enough. And again, this is the inverse of what Sid talked about as a Jesus-centered gospel, where the word of yes, the word of amen, uh, is what begins the conference, not gets, not as what's said at the end of the conference, end of the day, when uh, Oliver Berkman, who is a wonderful uh, writer and uh, writes for The Guardian in England, he once said that many people begin today, begin the day with what he would call a productivity debt, where they're in the red. And unless they get to the black at the end of the day, they sort of feel bad about themselves. Um, And that's a, that's a, a, a excruciating way to live. And it's not actually a default although there is something to it. Now, I want to give you another word that I think helps us understand the secular age in a way that produces compassion. By the way, describing this is not meant in any way to A, distance myself or us from it, because this kind of understanding has much, very much pervaded the church. And in the book, at least, I wrote only about the things that I'm sort of complicit in. Uh, but i my hope is that you describing it and recognizing just the degree to, of, of, of expectation under which we all live is is enough to produce compassion um, and and love and the desire to reach out and and to mimic even the ministry of Jesus in a world that is very heavy laden indeed um, <clears throat> the The cult of productivity like almost everything in a secular age, uh, is fueled by what I would call today performancism. You can go to the next slide, performancism. Performancism is the assumption, and it's usually unspoken, that there's no distinction between what we do and who we are. Your resume isn't part of your identity, it is your identity. Your church isn't just part of your identity or where you work, it is you. Uh, What makes you lovable, indeed what makes your life worth living, is your performance at X, Y, or Z. Performancism holds that if you're not doing enough or doing enough well, you are not enough. At least you're less than those who are killing it. Performancism turns life into a competition to be won or a problem to be solved, as opposed to, say, a series of moments to be experienced or an adventure to relish or as as Christians, we believe sort of a, a kingdom to live into and to sort of see where God is at work and just sort of show up there with some hands and hopefully a listening ear. Performancism though, invests daily tasks with existential significance and turns menial activities into measures of enoughness. The language of performancism is the language of scorekeeping. And just like the weight scale or the calendar, it knows no mercy. Now, the next slide was going to be the clip from uh, uh, from um, The Good Place. Anyone see The Good Place, that show? The Good Place is so brilliant uh, because it is, it's about Kristen Bell, uh, who maybe you know is the voice of Anna from the Frozen movies or Veronica Mars, and she shows up in the afterlife. And uh, the first day of the afterlife, there's a uh, Ted Danson (laughs) gives a orientation in which he says, basically, you all are here in the good place because you lived a good life, a life worth living. And um, he says, uh, every action you ever committed on earth, you accrued a score, a point score. And so, for example, if you stopped genocide, you got a million points. But if you used Facebook as a verb, you lost 20 points. You know, if you rooted for the Cleveland Browns, uh, I don't know what the Canadian equivalent would that be. Well, then you gained 15 points. And if you sheltered someone in distress, you gained 600 points. But if you... um, told uh, someone without them asking that you're a vegan or a vegetarian, well, then you lost 25 points or something like that. If you pulled into the breakdown lane uh, when there was a traffic jam or cut someone off, well, then you lost points too. And it, what's great about that show, and it's very funny, and there's all sorts of wrinkles to it, it's a very philosophical show, it plays upon this default understanding of scorekeeping being something that's going on in life. That we believe that when it comes to God, that if you are good, you get good stuff, and those who are bad get bad stuff. But beyond that, kind of what we would call a simplistic yet psychologically deeply compelling understanding of the world, um, we do we keep score with other people, and we keep score. Social media, in fact, has is one large, you know greatest score tallying I mean, when, when, when once the like button was introduced and affirmation became quantifiable, uh, we introduced a scorekeeping mechanism, the likes of which the world had never seen. And, um, it's, if you're a person during COVID whose church had to do, um, you know online viewing and you were all of a sudden got thrust into the world of keeping track of how many views your videos got you know how excruciating that can be and that economy is so divorced from the economy of Christ who seemed to be Jesus who was who was, who was focused on uh, just on, on, on the people right in front of him and did you know 12 disciples is not that many uh, there was there was not a, a, the virality was came much later he didn't go viral till till he was long dead. Uh, he seemed to care about the least, the lost, the last, the lonely, and not the in, quote-unquote influencers of the world. But performancism, which thrives on scorekeeping, when it's supercharged by technology, the result can be deadly. Um, and smartphones indeed have ushered in an era where comparisons, according to data, are unceasing and meticulously curated. Um, that kind of competitive righteousness or enoughness uh, displayed on our screens, it accelerates and it fosters increasingly stratospheric expectations of performance that all but mandate a constant shortfall and the attendant anxiety. Okay, so kind of a I hope it's not, it's a kind of a dark picture on painting, but the the hope here is to. Cast into relief the beauty of what Jesus has to offer, the difference that we have, the, the oh the language that we can use, but also the the glorious good news of the Jesus centered gospel. But before I move into one picture of that Jesus centered gospel, I just want to um, acknowledge that uh, the church, the Christian church, often resembles its secular replacements more than the real thing. The ethos of secularism and secularity operate identically as we've talked about. Uh, um, it's a religion of law. If you eat well enough, if you love well enough, you know, you will be enough. That's the promise at the heart of a religion of law. And it applies to every re- uh, replacement religion under the sun. The seculosity of sort of the, the, the church becomes another secular institution when law supplants grace as the final word of Jesus Christ to the sinner. or when we subvert our immortal hymn, I once was lost but now I'm found, so I better stay found. That kind of ethos when that is what in it, uh, um, takes over your church, your Christian community, you know that you're in trouble. We start asking ourselves, hey if you know if Jesus met and embraced me when I fell off the ladder of life, when I wasn't enough, then why does it feel like I'm on a new ladder now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm following Jesus? Why do I get the creeping suspicion that I'm not a good enough follower of Jesus? That's where secularism creeps into what I call Jesus land. And it, it, when the church becomes another performance's venue to establish your enoughness rather than the only reliable place to receive it, it takes different forms on the left and the right. The, the right always seems to gravitate towards a more personal form of performancism. The left has its own sort of collective form of performancism. So the driver of burnout on the right usually forms of personal piety, and the driver of burnout on the left is usually sort of a, a – a, a, um, a demand to transform uh, uh, the world into a more social direction, socially just direction. Uh, So either you transform yourself or you transform the world, but in both cases, you start to feel like I'm not enough. (laughs) I'm not doing enough. This uh, uh, Our our community isn't enough either. Um, But when once something that's joyful devolves into something joyless, or when your faith becomes a driver of added exhaustion rather than a respite from it, uh, we are swimming in the water that is the very opposite of Jesus's timely invitation to come to me, all you that are weary and covering heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And if that's the case, if that's ethos infects our churches, you can understand why more and more people would opt to sleep in on a Sunday morning. Now, I'm almost ready for the Q&A here, um, but... I wanna say this, that I think that by recognizing that these impulses are everywhere within the church, outside the church, that none of us are truly free from our need for enoughness, our desire to be loved in the midst of our reality, not in terms of our ideal, um, um, it only expands the common ground that's required to live together in a non-miserable way. I believe that this might reconfigure our anxiety in a helpful way about the diminishing relevance of Jesus um, in a context of sort of a rising number of nuns. Uh, those things are not so threatening. In fact, they're an opportunity for creativity and compassionate Jesus centered ministry. Um, I think that this underst- the understanding that people in a secular age are all sort of living under immense demand Uh, for enoughness, simultaneous yearning for it. Um, It draws us closer together and that we're all subject to the same emotional behavior patterns. Um, And I want to say that I think that the religion of Jesus, the way of Jesus at its core is a way of, 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 of grace, not of, of, of law, or you might say a way of, of law and grace. Um, the upright have no need of clemency. The healthy, no need of a doctor. But what makes the way of Christianity, of Jesus, a religion of grace, is its essential revelation of God meeting us in our collective and individual not-enoughness. Uh, this is the kind of uh, love that knows no bounds, that lays down its life for its enemies. Not a roadmap map to engineering spiritual enoughness, but the glorious proclamation that on account of Jesus, you and I are enough right now, right here, before we say and do anything. Put up my final slide here, which is Rembrandt's sketch. It was never finished, of the parable of the workers of the vineyard, which I'm sure some of you know, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It's a beautiful, beautiful, I'm surprised he never finished it. Some of his workers did a different version of it later. 1637, I believe, is when it was painted. And I punt back to this in a world defined by the cult of productivity and to people suffering under the weight of their not-enoughness. You know the parable, but I'll repeat it for you. A landowner hires men first thing in the morning to work his vineyard. and comes back to the marketplace a few hours later to hire more, and then again a few hours after that, and then once more just before the end of the day. And at sundown, he pays them all the same, a full day's wage. Those who arrive first are miffed. You could see it in the painting. They're sort of on the shoulder of the landowner. How? What? How could this be? But the landowner stands his ground. He does not penalize anyone involved, least of all those who are most clearly and disrespectfully hampered by an excessive devotion to what they feel their productivity has brought them. They all get the same paycheck. I think Jesus is painting a portrait of a place, of a kingdom where reward is not a matter of output or merit, but of grace, where we are valued according to our presence rather than our accomplishment where all the boss seems to require of his workers is their need. This is unfair and offensive to the early risers, but of deep comfort to those who get there late, the inefficient, the unproductive. The parable sketches a beautifully Jesus centered gospel, one in which love and esteem are not distributed on the basis of output, where men and women aren't evaluated according to how well they stack up against others, but On the largeness of divine generosity. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com, where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.